Thank you for listening to this message by Dr. Ian Jagelman. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. The following message was given by Dr. Ian Jagelman during his 40 years of ministry as a church leader in Australia. It's our sincere desire that this timeless message will equip you as a leader and a servant in your family, business and community. More resources like this one can be found at jagelman.org. Enjoy the following message. Father, we thank you that you have not just saved us, but you are building us to be part of your household and to be part of a community of testimony, witness to you and your greatness. Father, I pray as we study the wonder of the church tonight in Paul's thinking, I pray it will inspire us and expand our understanding of what church is and especially that we'll have a deeper sense of your purpose for the church and our place in it. So again, Holy Spirit, be our teacher and may your word become alive to us in ways we've never seen before. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in, in this series, as we, we went back and we looked at the concept of the plan and purpose of God, God had a plan and a purpose, and Paul's starting point is this understanding that God's in control. Purpose and plan of God, we looked at the issue of the, you know, the preeminence of Christ in that plan, and that it's, uh, he sent it to it, and that you, 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 the moment you shift away from a Christ-centeredness, you've lost Paul. Uh, you, it's, it's, it's in him. Um, last week, we very briefly touched on the notice, uh, notion of salvation as we were looking at the third theme, which is the, that salvation is by grace, it's not of works. And that although having been saved by grace, God's got something for us to do. It's, it's uh, entirely something of grace. I introduced to you the concept that for Paul, salvation is never an individualistic thing. It's uh, we are saved into something, and that is the church, the, the body of Christ, the people of God, and that God has a covenant community with which uh, God relates. He relates to the church. And of course, if you think about it, uh, just as God dealt with Israel under the old covenant, there are hints of this in the New Testament, that God will deal with his church and so, so the letters, seven letters to the churches of Asia in Revelation, you know, it's, it's a, uh, Jesus says through the prophet John, you know, he says, you know, this is who you are unless you change, this is what I'm going to do. And clearly it's judgment upon the church. It's not upon the individual. It's, there's seen to be this community of faith, a church which will stand under either God's blessing or judgment. Now, we just touched it last week, and it's this that we're going to go into tonight in some, I think, quite interesting ways for us. Now, Paul, in his language, as he is wont to do, uh, has a series of words which describes the community of faith. Uh, and we're going to, we will start at Ephesians 2, 11 and through 22, and we'll see this different language. But, you know, he'll talk, call, call it the God's household, the house of God, he'll, into which we come by adoption and so on. And I've given you a reference for that. He'll talk about a kingdom in 
talked about being you know, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of, of his beloved son. And we might have a look at that. Colossians 1. Verse 12 and 13. Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to ensure in the inheritance of the saints and light, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now that would, so you can talk about household. Paul will talk about us being a field or us being a temple or us being a kingdom. Now, all of these are kind of um, words which describe groups or more than an individual because that's the way Paul thinks. He thinks although we are individually saved by grace as we believe in response to the gospel, Paul says the consequence of our salvation is that we become part of something more than us. And so we move from personal salvation, which is our, the consequence of our personal response to the message of Christ, into the consequence of that personal response, which is that we are transferred into something. Uh, you know, and the funny thing is that we can say, well, I didn't join the church, I just became a Christian. Right, you get that kind of language. So you get people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church. Right? Which for Paul has no has no concept of that. You can't separate the church from from being a disciple of Jesus. If you are, if you are part of God's household, if you've been adopted into God's family, you're part of the family. And that's that that is behind his his thought. When Paul became a believer in Jesus, he became a member of the church. Yeah. Remember I've said you look back at what influenced Paul. And the answer is, you know, his understanding of the scripture, but it was his encounter with Christ and his conversion experience. Now, do you remember on the way to Damascus, as Paul is on his journey, he's riding on his donkey and he gets knocked to the ground. And what's Paul doing? Why is he going to Damascus? Persecute the church, right? the followers of the way, because right at the beginning that was called the way. And he hears this voice from heaven saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And out of this experience, Paul's persecuting the church, Jesus says, he is being persecuted is conceived this concept of the church as the body of Christ. In other words, the church is Christ. It is his ongoing presence in the world. And so Paul understands that to, to, to be a follower of Jesus is to be part of his body, which is the church. And as I said in these just these introductory notes, that if we really are part of... Uh, this new community which God has formed, if we are truly one of Abraham's descendants because of our faith, you know, if we've really become this, then as a consequence, we're not just children of the house, 
we become heirs, and that's something we will pick up. And it's just, I've given you some scriptures to reflect on that. Now, as I say in the introduction, this new community of faith Paul normally calls church and is described as the body of Christ of which we become members. And it's the nature of this new body which is the evening session. And what I want to do, so that's just some introductory comments. I want us to read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and then I want to come back and I want to talk about the very word church itself and take you into some quite interesting territory about it. So if we can read from uh, verse 11 down, so Ephesians 2, 11. Um, Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, that you were at that time, that's before you became believers, before you became Christians, you are separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Well, that's kind of a pretty gloomy outcome, isn't it? You know, that's, that's the way Jews perceive the Gentiles. That's the Jewish perception. But now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinance that in himself he might make the two, that's Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity, that's the law. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, that's to the Gentiles, and to the peace to those who were near, who were the Jews. For through him we both, that's Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you, that's the Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in or by the Spirit. The church. What is the church? What is this concept of the church into which we have become and which is now Jew and Gentile? What is this? I want to take us back out of Paul for a minute to Matthew chapter 16 because it is a new covenant community. So we're, we're kind of under now point one in the notes. It's a new covenant community established by Christ by the shedding of his blood. But let's look at a, a verse here, well-known verse, in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi. And uh, I'm not sure whether the, I've discussed this, the experience at Caesarea Philippi with this group but as I come to this passage can I just put you in the geographical context 
Caesarea Philippi is to get to to, to get to Caesarea Philippi, and from Galilee there's a kind of cross-country walk. But what you basically do is go up the Jordan River north, and so you'd have Syria to the east and the Mediterranean to the west, and you go straight up the Jordan to, to its headwaters, the beginning of the river. And Caesarea Philippi is the, the beginning of the Jordan River. Now, the snows from Mount Hermon, which are in the distance, melt and come down and come up as a spring. And Dan, which is the northernmost tribe, is, is, is within a few hundred yards. Tel Dan, which is the, the northernmost of the archaeological finds, is right next to Caesarea Philippi. But when you get to Caesarea Philippi, there's, this, uh, there's a spring, there's a pool, and where you can sit down under the shade of the trees around and put your feet in and kind of cool down from the journey and so on. But within 200 yards of the spring where Jesus will have been with his disciples is this huge rock face, cliff, maybe 200 metres high, solid rock. And into that rock, or out of that rock rather, the Romans had built a temple to the Roman god uh, Panias. And in the Romans called it Panias, didn't call it Caesarea Philippi. And it got another name, another form, Banias. But if we can visualize ourselves in Jesus' time, sitting in the spring, they sat down and Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And within 200 yards is a Roman temple built out of solid rock. Right? Can you picture it? Now listen to what Jesus says. He says, uh, verse 15, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, meaning Petros, uh, Petra, and upon this rock I will build my church. All right, this is it. You kind of get the picture? It's kind of nice if you could see it, wouldn't you? Yeah. But we read it and we don't realise that in the conversation there's this huge rock face staring them with a, with a temple. Right. Now, this is the issue. No one believes that Jesus taught in Greek. There, are, there is a dispute amongst the scholars whether he taught in Hebrew, which was the language of the Jews, or Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians. Now, they're related languages, they're closely related, you know, they're both Semitic languages, but they were different languages. And there is a debate as to whether he would have taught in Hebrew, would have, and there's, there's an argument which says he will have spoken in Aramaic because Hebrew had ceased to be a spoken language after the period of the exile. But irrespective of what that is, in this case, it, it, it doesn't really matter. Because let's assume he spoke Hebrew or, or Aramaic, whatever. The one thing he wouldn't have done was said, thou art Peter, Petra, and upon this 
Petros, I will build my ecclesia, because the word for church is ecclesia. That's what's in the Greek text. I don't have a problem with that. That's what's in the New Testament. Thou art Petra, and upon this Petros, I will, you know, oikomenes, or whatever it is, you know, I will build ecclesias, altus. I will build my church, or emu, my church. Now, Jesus didn't say that. He didn't use the word ecclesia. He, he would have used a Hebrew word, or Aramaic word. And what's interesting for us about is to speculate as to which word he used because there was the choice of two words he would have used. There was the word kahal and there is the word ida as to which of the two words he would have used. Now the word kahal, because I always get these confused, in the Old Testament is used for the community of Israel. And Edom is used for the congregation of Israel. Now, the community had its leaders, they were called elders. And the congregation, in those, which in Greek is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia had its leaders who were the priests and Levites and the high priests and the kings. Kings and elders. So they were both, Israel was both a community and when it gathered for worship, it was a congregation. And when it gathered to congregate its leadership, uh, was a pro with the prophets and priests and so on, but weren't the kings. So when they gathered, Samuel might minister, and boy, the king better do what Samuel said as a prophet. Or when it gathered in the temple, the priests were in charge. And there are these two aspects of the life of Israel. It was both a community, which was everybody, and it was also a congregation. And when it congregated, not all the whole community gathered together. In fact, under the legal system of Israel, there were only parts of it which were allowed to gather. You had to be a certain age, and there were certain physical impediments, or if the women was a certain part of their menstrual cycle, they couldn't come. And there, were, there were all sorts of requirements. And, but there was this d distinct, cons two different concepts. Now, when we come to church, Paul um, has both these concepts in mind. He has the concept of the community, the new covenant community, which is, you know, the covenants of promise, those who enter into all of this. And he also has the sense of this community when it gathers. And when it gathers... He'll, he'll think, he'll use the term church. And I, I actually think it's probably better to think of 
we can talk about the Catholic Church, the universal church, the whole of the community. I think it's probably better to think of the community, Jesus' new covenant community, as all of us everywhere, all part of the same uh, covenant community. But once you get to a kind of physical locality, <coughs> he'll use the term church. He'll use the church in Ephesus, the church in this, or the church in the home. It's a sense of a group of people who gathered together becomes the church and I asked to ponder the question you know when Jesus said I will build my church you know it wasn't a gathering it wasn't a, it wasn't just limited to congregation but you know the author has to choose a Greek word to describe and so ecclesia is there but clearly Jesus is wanting to build a community which gathers that's what he's building. He's, uh, there's this kind of vision of, of what it is. Uh, and I, this is uh, really helpful because Paul, apart from passages like Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, uh, maybe 1 Corinthians 7, there'd be another passage, but he actually says very little about the concept of the congregation. What is to happen when we gather? Yeah, this is a discussion about spiritual gifts and order and so on. He, he deals with it because it's an issue in Corinth. But in the rest of the epistles, there's, you know, you'll get a, in a, in a short teaching in Ephesians 5 about exhorting none another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You get something, literally just two verses. But the rest of his focus is, uh, is actually on the community. The focus on what they to believe and how they're to live. And the living factor of it is what they live in their family life, what they live as employees, what they live in, in their relationships with one another and the forgiveness and so on. It's the community life of Israel that Paul is really concerned with, the new Israel. And... Uh, and the answer is why? And the answer is because Paul's read his Old Testament. Paul's read the scriptures. Paul knows that it's people, they'll, they'll faithfully come to the temple and worship and offer sacrifices and all of this, but then go home and turn to other gods and commit adultery and immorality. And, you know, he knows that the breaking of the covenant doesn't occur so much when they worship, it occurs that when they live their life. And so his notion of church is embraces both these concepts and he'll use the word church because it normally and almost exclusively simply in describing the location of a group of people in a particular geographical area. But all these other words relate to, to this, this much broader sense of community. And... Um, so I'm giving you two verses which we'll read and then we can have a brief chat. In uh, Romans 5 verse 9, now we'll make another couple more statements. Romans 5 9, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we're enemies, we were reconciled to God through the, blood, through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we save by his life? 
and uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And verse 25, <coughs> referring to the Lord's Supper, and he says, In the same way he took the cup after the supper. This is the cup of the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He, he just as much as the uh, celebration, remembering on Passover of their deliverance out of Egypt into their promised land was something every Jew did every Passover as a special time and just as Christ is now taking them out of sin into the kingdom of his son a similar deliverance, a similar transference and so on and the communion is the way we remember the formation of a new community Paul says it's done by his blood it's established by his blood and it's the blood of Christ which establishes new, this new community and it's his starting point. You know, how does this new community come about? And the answer is through the blood of Christ. Because every, every Jew knows every covenant has to be sealed with blood. And if it's a new covenant community, it's sealed by the blood of Christ. I wonder, you know, just thinking about this. One of the things which concerns me and has, I suppose, concerned me all my life is what I call denominational loyalty. Uh, a loyalty which is not to the church of a city or the church of a nation, uh, but loyalty to a particular expression historic expression of the church and my observation is how difficult at times it is for people to shift from quite one denomination to another out of what they perceive to be loyalty or disloyalty as if as if there is an issue of loyalty to a heritage or a tradition or a building or, or a, or the denomination in which I grew up. And Paul, I think, would be mystified by it. In fact, in Corinthians, when they'd start, one of them started saying, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Kephas, this kind of issue. He, he says, well, I have to tell you what, no one was baptised into my name, it was into the name of Christ that we're baptised. Our, our loyalty is to Christ. And... Because of this, my, my view is that Paul was sortly, simply sought to build the Church of Christ. And that we ought to simply view ourselves as members of the Church of Christ, which meets in a physical location. And it doesn't really matter whether in this physical location happens to be Christian City Church or that physical location happens to be an Anglican church or another church situation happens to be a Baptist church. We join it not because it's Christian City Church or Anglican or Baptist or whatever, because it's the Church of Christ, a place where there are members of his community who are choosing to gather together for the ministry of the word, the breaking of bread, for the worship and celebration and so on and so on. And there's a community they're gathering. And the moment one attaches loyalty to a label, one has lost 
loyalty to the Church of Christ and Christ himself. And uh, one can enjoy and celebrate being part of a particular church. And you can love it. You can love the people who are part of it because they're your community, they're your family. You can love it. But it has to be seen as simply a group of people. And basically, I think, in any healthy way, you've got to ignore any label which is on it. And in my own walk, of my own journey of faith, there's a, you know, I was for many years within the what is called the Anglican Church in this country or Church of England and other countries and so on and Baptist traditions and brethren and so on. You know, what I've loved was the church, which was the people who chose them to gather together, who through the blood of Christ had been drawn near to Christ with whom I could have a relationship. And... Uh, and I'm just aware that we are entrance into that community and as community members we gather in any one place. The moment we are gathering, we become a church. A gathering of people who are part of that community. That would be Paul's starting point. And we're going to go on, but that's a good point to pause to. Um, in your concern with those denominational divides, but what has really concerned me is this point you brought out here about the difference between the uh, community and or the community that congregates. Because it's my experience that uh, many a minister can be very uh, singular and one-eyed about the value of the congregation mm. and focus all the energy on the quality of that congregate, the meeting, and uh, without mm. consideration for the very thing that you mentioned, which was um, how we as a community relate to the rest of the world every day mm. see? well you're right you're right there but you know it doesn't seem to matter what tradition you talk about there's been this incredible em emphasis on the Sunday experience and uh, that's the tragedy of it you know because it's wonderful to gather the early church if you go early enough say between 80 70 and 100 I mean say they met in small groups in homes and then they and often met before sunrise, it says, the early writings say, as a group together just to worship and come under a prophet's teaching or apostle's teaching for a period of time. They just gather in caves and open air and whatever, and they'd, they'd gather. And then, then they'd have to, you know, before, before them, if they were slaves, before the masters woke up, they'd have to be back serving in their households and everything else like that. It was a precious time to gather. But the focus of their whole life was living the Christian faith. Um, and <clears throat> that's, that's the nectar. That's the stuff we need to drink. We're, all of us are out there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this comes back to my whole question, which I've been thinking about and you, you were discussing before we started tonight, is the whole place of a building. Once you build a building and you call it a church, the assumption of people is that's church because it's not a church. No building in the New Testament was called a church. Everyone has told in the New Testament period that the church was the people. And that was just the building where the church met in. And when it was a house, everyone realised that's a house and the people's the church. But once you build a particular style of building which is religious in character, there's this confusion is created as to what is church. In fact, I have people, I've met people who say, well, I, we couldn't come to church in the school, it's not a church. 
I don't feel comfortable about worshiping God in something other than a church. And it's only architecture. I mean, and I mean, so there are four or five different historic kinds of architecture. But it's just an architectural expression of what people think is a building which would bring glory to God. But there is this, and this is how deep-seated is the distinction which has been drawn by the congregation and the community. And uh, personally, I'm convinced that Paul's understanding, Corinthians is wonderful for this reason. You know, he'll say to the people, and Jesus does the same. He said, if you have a dispute, don't go to court. Call in one of the elders. Let them judge, mediate between you, arbitrate, conciliate, whatever legal term you want. Because if you can't settle disputes like that, what chance, Paul says, what chance have you got of ruling the world in the future? And a spiritual leadership, and I personally take the view, you know, that I wear all these different hats. At times I wear a rabbi's hat. You know, I'm a teacher of the Lord, a master of the Lord, and people come to me to help understand the difficult parts of the scripture, and that's my rabbi's hat. That's okay. But other times I get called from members of our church and saying, we want you to put the elder's hat on. And by elders, they mean elders in the community of Israel. They want wisdom as to issues related to life, business decisions and all of these things and organising disputes. I've been called by two members of the church who are in legal dispute with one another to mediate their dispute and sort it out for them, which I did. I don't, I don't see any conflict between the two. I see it's a role of the community leader within the new community. I don't, for myself, I just don't draw this distinction at all. And, uh, and I, I, I believe Sunday is important. I love worship. I love to gather and worship. And it's time with my gift I can teach the community when it gathers. But the tough stuff for the church is not Sunday. The stuff is Monday through Saturday. That's, that's when our faith is lived. And that's when church is. That's when the community <coughs> of Christian City Church is. That's why home groups are so important. Because in the small groups in the home, you can take what you've been taught on Sunday as a church and think about it as it relates to everyday life. And think about the application. How then do we then live? And, uh, but it's to do, to get this right, you've got to have your view of church right to understand it's both community and congregation. And it's, it's certain, certainly our building. It's a great thing values your everyday experience rather than devaluing it regardless of use you know nothing. More than that is really what you do for the church. Yes, family. and you know, a concept of calling, you know, the if you go back to read the Puritans and uh, 16th, 17th century, that period of the, of the original Puritans. And Puritanism's been given this kind of dirty label from the Victorian period of being very narrow-minded and everything else like that. But you, you can read a book like Puritanism and a Work Ethic. And they were thinking out their faith in the way they lived and the way they worked. It was very practical. They had moved away from a liturgical or ritualistic view of the faith into a living view of the faith. Very practical. And you know what was called a pure, what was originally called the Puritan work ethic, and has now become known as the Protestant work ethic, was a sense of serving God and honouring God in the way in which I work. 
And that's all related to this concept of community because the church is a community. It's not just uh, a congregation. How are we going, folks? <laughs> all right, we're moving along then. Absolutely. You know when you talked about um, the rock? Mm -hmm. You said, no, I'm this rock. I didn't quite understand that. You know, what, was he, what was he saying? You know, about the rock? Yeah. We'll come back to it. Okay. okay? Yeah, it's, I've got it in here, so we'll come back to it. Um, it's in point four, so we can make sure we get to point four. <laughs> okay, the second thing... <coughs> If the nature of the covenant community is both congregation and community, you know, if the nature of the church is both a congregation and community, then two, what about its membership? Who are part of it? In Ephesians 2.19, let's have a look at these various scriptures. In 2.19, added to the Jews are then the Gentiles, who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So the Gentiles are members. Now, he makes it clearer than that for us in Galatians 3. Verse 26. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And Romans 11, and I will touch this, but I do so with some fear and trepidation that we'll get waylaid along the way on this. But in Romans 11... Let me, let me put this into, into its context. <coughs> and you, really, you need to go back to um, chapter 9. We'll just, we'll just flick back to chapter 9 very briefly, verse 1. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing witness in the Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and increasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law and the temple service, these gifts which are given, Paul later says, without repentance, who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, overall God blessed forever. Now, Paul expresses his deep compassion and grief and yearning to see Jews responding to the gospel. But when the gospel was preached to them, he says in, verse 10, in Romans 10, they didn't believe. Now, is then the church a replacement community? You see? Is it... The Jews have rejected it, so now God blesses the Gentiles and doesn't bless the Jews. And Paul says, no way. Back to chapter 11, verse 11. I say then that they did stumble so as to fall, did they? Now, you know, have they finished? May it never be. 
But by their transgression, salvation has come to you, the Gentiles, to make them jealous. And then Paul unpacks from them all the way down there. He speaks in verse 13 of his apostleship to the Gentiles. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. And the fact that it's kind of, yes, they rejected it, and that's been a blessing for the Gentiles, but he doesn't want the Gentiles to become proud about what's happened. Verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews, and you being a wild olive branch, that's the Gentiles, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive branch, which is God's covenant community. Do not be arrogant towards the branches as if you... But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. You were, they were broken off for their unbelief, and you stand by your faith. But do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now, what's he talking about here? His, his concept is that there is fundamentally an olive, you know, an olive tree in which there are branches. And this olive tree in the Old Testament is God's covenant community. That's the imagery. The olive branch is always a symbol of God's, of God's community. And he says, yes, some branches were broken off. And there were some of the Jews, because of their disobedience, were broken off. And you, as Gentiles, were grafted in. And you become part of the community. He says, but that's all you are. You're only a branch which has been put in. You are not the vine. The vine is this community of both Jews and Gentile. Um, and last year in this series, um, under a different name, I did a whole series of teaching on covenant the whole nature of the covenants and how it all unpacks. And if you weren't there, you will find those particular, uh, particularly interesting study because it, it raises the whole question as, does, as to say historic Israel, the land of Israel. Does that mean we are heirs of that? And uh, the basic answer is no. The land still belongs to the physical descendants of Israel. And, uh, but the promise of righteousness, you know, which is to, given to Abraham as part of one of his covenant promises is ours. But I can't buy into that as part of this. But to, for, just for our sake, to understand that there are no two peoples of God. There is not the Jews as one people of God and the Gentiles as a new people of God called the church. Not for Paul. For Paul, there is one community which may be in our time predominantly Gentile, but it's a temporary thing. And Paul says, you know, the last times, when, when he calls the times of the Gentiles is finished, the Jews, there'll be a, a mass turning back of Jews in and it'll be one, clear that it is one community mixed of Jew and Gentile. And it may even be helpful today that we meet separately. And so there's been the whole birth of the concept of messianic synagogues. And to reach Jews, it may be helpful to have uh, assemblies. And in Israel, they're called kehalats, or assemblies of Jews run by Jews, all of whom have accepted Jesus as Messiah. 
as a way of reaching the Jews. Because Paul says to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win the Jew. The Gentiles, I became a Gentile that I might win the Gentiles. So it may be helpful to do that. But in terms of the community, there's just one community. And if that's the case, if Jesus, our Messiah, who was a Jew, and if his community was established by Jesus as the foundation of the community, and as we'll see, built upon it by apostles and prophets who were Jewish. And if the fundamental vine is made up of Jews and is now mixed, why and how can there ever be anti-Semitism in the church? But it came. It came because in Acts 15, when they discussed the issue, does a person need to become a Jew before he becomes a Christian, they decided no. You could be a part of the community without becoming a Jew. Circumcision was not necessary. Keeping of the law was not necessary. That's the whole council in Acts chapter 15. So that's okay. That's wonderful. But then around the 3rd and 4th century, they had a description, they had a discussion. Could you be a Jew and join the church? And they decided no. They decided that a Jew had to become a Gentile before he could become a Christian. And from there is the, is the beginnings of this anti-Semitism. You know, a total loss of the sense of our identity, where we're one community. You know, that people would hate, claim to be Christian, yet hate themselves, really, hate the very thing to which they belong, which is a community made of Jews and Gentiles. Well, not really, in the sense that uh, Jesus is an embodiment of the community. When he comes, he is the fulfilment of all the community was meant to be. Jesus is a perfect, you know, representation of 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 a community in submission to the will and love of God. And. Um, in, in, uh, in Isaiah, it says of Jesus that he was a light, you know, light for revelation, you know, the suffering servant, really, the whole passages in latter Isaiah, which embrace this servant who is to serve and be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory of the people of Israel, this suffering servant. And what we don't realise, you know, is the suffering servant in Isaiah, was Israel itself as a people. They were the servant. They were the means. They were meant to be the community through whom all Gentiles could be blessed as the people. But God through Isaiah prophesies that the, the branch, the vine, vine this, this whole thing gets cut down and all that's left is a tiny stump. And out of the stump comes the shoot that's all that's left. Now, initially, in its fulfillment in Israel, it's just the, the few people in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, who survived the Assyrians when they surround the city and, and so on. And so, but, but Christ is this shoot. The whole purposes of God shrink from a community of a, of a nation down to a single person, Jesus. And uh, you remember in the magnificent. 
then, and it's and it's uh, it's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of my people Israel. These words are picked up as of, of Jesus, and yet in Acts, Paul will apply this same scripture to himself as a minister to the Gentiles, as the building of the church and establishment of the church. And uh, the diagram, which which kind of describes it, is kind of there's this. There's Israel, is to be the, which is meant to be the light. And then it all comes down to one person, to Jesus of Nazareth. And then it expands out again. There's a role and purpose of the church as the body of Christ. For Paul, kind of, out it goes to understand our purposes. And in the church is both Jew and Gentile now. And so, in point three, Paul, Paul will then understand that in this kind of image, Christ is the cornerstone. He's the, he's the capstone. He's the, the head. And um, the whole thing holds together by him. It's a very interesting use of analogy by Paul. And it relates to, it's an architectural uh, imagery um, I don't know if you've ever seen how they, they built their buildings, and that, and particularly the arches and so on. But uh, the way you did is you had these series of building blocks which were put together. They, they'd create a wooden um, framework first into which they, which was, and the wood was like this. And it was, was softening the water and shaped and then they put these, these blocks in around here in the building of construction. And the last block, which was put in, is the center one. That's the capstone. And when it, it was there, then you can remove the framework and the whole thing would hold together. It was the headstone or the capstone, and it was secure altogether. Pull it out, and the whole thing collapses. And this is the language which he uses describing Christ. As he'll, he'll use both a, a building of a capstone, which is this imagery of a building. He'll use a foundation stone upon which you lay the foundation stone and the whole building architecturally is built around which to hold it together. He used both these kinds of language to describe the concept of building and to which Christ is both cornerstone or capstone which holds it together and its head or headstone and and uh, he does so for two reasons number one is to give Christ preeminence in the church to realize without the, without Christ the church can't exist and uh, you remove Christ from the church and the whole thing will collapse. It's his, and he, Paul will use language in... in um, so we turn to Colossians chapter 1 to, he, to hear him. Paul will say...
Verse 16, by him all things were created, both invisible and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All right? That's this language of capstone or foundation stone. Remove him and the whole thing falls apart. In Ephesians 1... which we've kind of looked at already, but we'll go back to for just a moment. Paul says, of him... Uh, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that's kind of common language. Allow So he has preeminence. But second thing is that it only holds together as it is in submission to him. The church can only be the church as it continues in submission to Christ. And one can say of it individual, the moment I cease to submit my life to Christ, I can be like a stone which falls out of the, an old building and falls to the ground separated from the rest of the building. I have to remain in submission and relationship to him. And this is the this is the interesting thing. Without a stone there's no headship. It's just the capstone's just a stone, but you put it in relationship to others and it becomes the head. You know, without authority Christ is not the Lord of the church. He, he has the right to be it, but he becomes it as the church submits to him. Now, submission creates headship. If I were, you know, if I was teaching a marriage and family, as Paul does in Ephesians 5, talking about the church and the headship of Christ, I would say, you know, a husband has no authority over his wife until she submits to him, and then her submission creates his headship. Headship is what happens when submission occurs. It's actually created by it. It's not a position you have. It's something which is created by a certain kind of relationship. And when God put the church under Christ, he created his authority, created his headship. And it becomes real when we submit to him. Um, and for us as the church, it's... it's uh, for Paul, Paul has no concept of someone who would say, Jesus is my saviour, but I've not yet made him Lord. No, no concept of that. No concept <coughs> of a gospel which does not proclaim him saviour and Lord. And that the, that the act of, the very act of baptism into, into the community 
which is you know, best probably expressed for us in Romans 10. which is a baptismal, everyone accepts it's, a, it's describing a baptismal context. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord or Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you should be saved. For with a heart man believes resulting in righteousness, with a mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. But there's this, but it's... <coughs> This is, this is why this strange notion that you can be a Christian and not be part of the church is just utterly foreign to Paul because to become a Christian is to yield your life to the Lordship of Christ. It's, it's the, you know, seeking forgiveness and being washed by his blood. But submitting to him as Lord is what happens at baptism. And who is the Lord? Well, he's the head of the church. You know, it's... And so Paul's language is we're baptised into the church, into Christ. Isn't submission then tied with obedience? Is that well, it has to be. If it's real... Is it an act it's, of the will to be obedient to, the, to, to what God is saying? Well, it is. It's, it's, it's certainly obedience. It's the obedience of faith that I can trust him and will believe in him and submit to his authority. That's the nature of the faith which is expressed in then obedience to what he wants me to do. But Paul cannot conceive of kind of Jesus did this transaction over here where on the cross he paid for the penalty for my sin and I can just go to some ATM machine in the heaven and just plug in and say, thank you, my debts are paid. Now, thank you very much. I'll just go on living my life as if I'm still the master of my own life. Paul has no concept of that at all. He, because it's in, you're baptised into Christ. You know, under his lordship and under his headship we become part of his community the community of Christ that's and he has these all these different languages you know he'll call us the temple he'll call us God's field but all of it is to do with a sense of ownership a people who are owned you know, in Corinthians Paul says you know we're not our own we're bought with a price as we become we've exchanged slavery to sin, to slavery to Christ. We're not free. Paul has no notion of Christian freedom, which says, having been free from the power of sin, we can just do what we want. Because we're purchased by his blood, it, it wasn't just paying a penalty for sin, he actually bought the right to be the authority in our life. That's administered through love, like we're constrained by love. Not a law anymore, well, it's not a law, but it's a relationship. But we have moved from a relationship to sin, where we were slaves to sin, to a relationship with Christ, where we're the slaves and servants of Christ. We do what he wants us to do. Not law-based, but it's to a person. It's not, it's not law, it's to a person. Okay, then what does that mean in my daily life, if Jesus is Well, John said, the question, you know, the question is, how does it work itself out? Well, John says, a new commandment he gave to us, that we should love one another as he loved us. And by this would all men know that we are his disciples, or we really have faith in him and trust in him, if we love one another. 
And in 1 John, he spells it all out. You know, if you see a brother who has nothing and you have it and you just say, God bless, go away and be warm, don't give to him. You don't, you don't love him. And if you don't love him, you don't love God. It's not, it's not 10 commandments or 630 commandments, or whatever it is. It's basically one commandment. And in this, you know, in this is the, the community. You know, the Romans wrote, said about the early believers, see how they love one another. And we hear the statement, you think it was a compliment. It wasn't, it was an insult. They, they thought that a community would live out of such compassion and concern for one another rather than living for themselves as an absolute joke. Because they took the view that one should live for oneself. You know, that's how different it was. That's the power of the early church and why it grew so fast and became so influential, so strong that they couldn't stop it was the fact that, there was, that it was a community of love, deep compassion, not just for itself. It was a, of, of compassion for those outside it. So in Rome, when the, you know, they didn't uh, abort the children, they allow the babies to be born, and then if they didn't want the child, they take the baby out and they just leave it on a hillside. That was, that was uh, there's a term, was it patricide or something, the term for it, but I can't remember. But, so what did the, the church out of compassion for the infants? That a group of them, every night they go out in the mountains and collect the babies who've been left and raise them as their own. You know, this sense of love and compassion. They couldn't change the law, they didn't attempt to change the law, but they, what they did is express this deep love and compassion. Point four, we needed to get here. Now, Jesus is this cornerstone, but in Ephesians 2.20, and it's interesting because he will use the same word in Corinthians in a different context, but he, he makes a very interesting statement about the roles of the apostles and prophets. He says, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the corner. So there is a foundation, but he's the Jesus is the corner of it, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, this is a difficult one. What is Paul actually saying here? If Paul had said on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, one could have concluded that he was referring to the Old Testament and the teaching of the apostles and the New. But he doesn't say prophets and apostles. He says apostles and prophets. In fact, if you look at uh, Ephesians 3 and verse 5, in terms of the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not being made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, in the spirit or by the spirit. Again, you get it in that same order, apostles and prophets. Then I think we have to conclude that Paul believes there are these two groups of people, apostles and prophets, who were recipients of revelation. And it is that revelation which was the foundation for the church. Remember I was asked the question about Matthew 16 and I said, 
I'll answer it. Let me remind you of the, of the scripture. It says, Who am I? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjana, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, what rock? The rock of revelation. As to who Jesus was, the church would be built. That is the foundation of the church. And the what was revealed to Peter? Yeah, well, the apostles and prophets, and of whom he's one of the apostles. And there were clearly in the early church apostles and prophets who proclaimed the revelation that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Paul will sometimes, I think, use the word herald. And uh, twice of himself in 1 Timothy 2.7 and 2 Timothy 1.11, he says, I'm an apostle, a herald, and a teacher. And uh, I think the word herald is another, it's like a synonym for prophet. But in the early community, and we have a hint of it, and I'll, I'll give you a, a source to read. There's a very early uh, manuscript, which, which is a, a manual of discipleship. In its earliest form, it's called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. D-I-D-A-C-H-E, the Didache. And in it, there's a description of life in the very early church, probably dated A.D. 110. It got expanded out in the 3rd and 4th century into what was called the Constitutions of the Twelve Apostles. It's, it's much longer, it's kind of a, it's a large one, but in this early brief form. And in it, there are descriptions of itinerant apostles and prophets who went, went about. And it's as if these two terms are being used synonymously. They are the proclaimers of the revelation of who Jesus is. And it's the foundation of the church. And for us, you know, I have to say that the foundation of a church is the proclamation of the gospel, of who Jesus is as Saviour and Lord. That has to be the foundation. And the, the bigger a church gets, the bigger the foundation needs to be, the stronger this foundational element of evangelism needs to be. It's only foundation, but it is the foundation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 will, will go on and talk about what you build on that foundation, which is teaching. And he says, in, no foundation can be laid than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. And he says, therefore, you be careful how you build on that. And he warns the teachers, you know, if what you teach is unsound, it's like wooden hay and stubble, and it'll be consumed with fire. And if it's sound teaching, it'll be gold and silver and precious stones. And he makes this extraordinary statement that some of these teachers who what they teach is just wood, hay and stubble, he says their whole ministry will be consumed with fire, though they themselves will be saved. He says they'll have nothing left because what they built on that foundation is not worth anything. So the foundation is the apostles and prophets. It's, their, it's not them and their persons, but rather what they received by revelation and what they communicated.
which is who Jesus is. Now, I want to, I want over the page. I want to make two more statements, and we'll you know, we'll continue to pick this up and other parts of this as we, because we're going to get to Ephesians four and other parts there as we get through. <coughs> Well, there are, there are two really important statements that Paul makes in this Ephesians 2 passage. He says that it's a, he used the term a holy temple in the Lord, a place where God might dwell, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And um, if we can turn back to the Old Testament, to Zechariah, for just a little bit. Sorry, folks. How are you going there tonight? You alright? You with me? It's right near the end. Okay, Malachi and go back to Zechariah. <clears throat> and we might we might pick it up at the end of Zechariah three. Verse 8, now listen, Joshua the priest, the high priest, and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are assembled, for behold, I'm going to bring in my, my servant, the branch. <laughs> Does that ring a bell? I'm the branch, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches, we'll, we'll unpack it. For I behold the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone of seven eyes, and behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That day, hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbour, saying, Sit under his vine and under his fig tree. And the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who had wakened from his sleep, and he said to me, What do you see? And I said, Behold, a lampstand with gold and with bowl, a bowl and a top of it and it's seven lamps on it and seven sprouts belonging to each of the lamps which are the, on top of it. And I see two olive trees by it, one on one side of the bowl and the other on the other left. And I said to the angel who was uh, speaking with me saying, what are these my Lord? And he says, the angel who was speaking with me and answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no my Lord. And he answers to me, these are the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. What are you, a great mountain, behold, before Zerubbabel, you become a plain, and he'll bring forth the top stone with shouts, grace to it, grace to it. Now, obviously, I can't get into this whole thing. In fact, I did a, a Wednesday night series on, on Zechariah. But this is the image. This is Paul's basis for one of his whole understandings about the church, is that the physical temple which Zerubbabel and Zechariah were trying to rebuild, which was to be a work of man's hands, would be replaced by a lampstand, by a church. And the church would be built by the work of the Spirit and would be a dwelling place of the Spirit. And Paul makes this huge leap you can get, kind of get it in Ezekiel's view of temple and so on, is that, the, that God doesn't dwell in buildings made by human hands. We've been down this road before. right? He is building a new temple and it's 
human stones. Peter has the notion itself. You know, we are you know, a people that the people, this new community of God is not just a community, it's becoming a temple. And God, by his spirit, will dwell in the temple. And I th it's interesting in Corinthians where twice he uses the word, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It needs to be understood corporately. That as a community or as a church, we are the dwelling place. And the church is the temple. As we're all being fit together and moulded together, we are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And his, his understanding is then that because the Spirit dwells in this, this temple, the Spirit <coughs> manifests itself. And when the church is gathered, the Spirit manifests itself. <coughs> and it's another of these notions that Paul does not see any individual self-contained in himself, where God can so dwell in this individual he doesn't need the church. But the church is the temple where God dwells by his Spirit. That's his, that's his picture, his image, you know. So it's no longer, I don't have to go to Jerusalem, you know. I don't have to go to the temple. I don't have to go. When I go to the church, I gather in the temple. And it's not the building, it's the people. Where Christ is the head and the Spirit of God dwells. And if that's the, the reality for us. That's what we desire, the presence of the Spirit of God. How do we know the Spirit of God is there? The Word of God comes how do we know the Spirit of God is there? The power of God is manifest. It's on primarily through word and then through power. So Christ is preached. All of these things are evidences of the Spirit. And lastly, as I've said here, it's a place in which his name dwells. And I'd love to pick this up, and maybe we'll have time to pick this up in uh, next year when we continue this series. But... You know, when Solomon built the temple, he built it not for God to dwell in, but for God's name to dwell in. The name which is recorded in the law and is contained in the tabernacle, which is kept in the temple. And uh, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, and I've given you the references, you can look them up, but it's, the church is, is not just a place for the Spirit, but it's a, a place where the name of Christ dwells and is glorified where we lift up the name of Jesus and glorify his name. <coughs> and, and we ought to remember, you know, we, <coughs> the problem is we can glorify his name in worship and then mock his name in the way in which we live. And uh, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, speaking of the old covenant, he said, it's not for my sake that I'm going to deliver you, but for the sake of my name, which you profaned amongst the Gentiles. Yeah. And if there's this incredible sense, you know, the way in which we live either brings glory to his name or causes people to mock his name. What we are. And we do gather for the sake of his name, and in his name, and under the authority of his name, and for the glory of his name. We're conscious of that. Father, to you be glory in the church, both now and forever. 
And Lord, may through our lives, through the word of our lips, through the love we extend to one another and to others, Lord, may your name truly be lifted up. In Jesus' name. Amen.